recognize that when they do drive me nuts, um, I don't believe in karma, but, you know, Betty Ann and Glenn would probably be going, "Mm mm-hmm, that's what you get. That's what you get. Because I drove them nuts, I'm sure. Like father, like son. It may be a cliche, um, but it is true. And it should cause some of us to be terrified. I'm serious. It can be a terrifying thing that sons are like their fathers. John Woodhouse, in his commentary on this passage, says that. He says, this is a terrifying thought. The faults and failings of parents are often reproduced in their children. Good looks and intelligence are not the only things that are passed on from one generation to the next. We who are our parents shape our children in many ways, he says, in our own image. And sometimes we can take pride in that, but it is a terrifying thought. The old commentary on the whole Bible that Matthew Henry wrote forever ago on this passage, Henry says, Godly parents have often been afflicted with wicked children. Grace does not run in the blood. Corruption does. Grace doesn't run in the blood. It's imputed to us. It's given to us by God as a gift. The corruption, as we saw David say last week, in sin my mother conceived me. That doesn't mean she committed sin. He was just born in it. So, like father, like son is a reality that we see beginning to unfold from this chapter on for the next six or eight chapters. Now, many of us were raised in church, right? Many of us were drugged to Sunday school. But chances are you never heard a Sunday school story on 2 Samuel chapter 13. In fact, in Life Group this week, we had a great discussion around last week's sermon and the book that we're studying. You know, love the ones that drive you crazy. But one of the, one of the kids in our church, the little 10-year-old girl, said uh, concerning the sermon on David and Bathsheba, she said, that was awkward. <laughs> yes, it was. Well, listen, there's a reason why I felt like it was important that the kids maybe ought to have children's church today. Because this chapter 13 is awkward. It ought to be revolting to us because it's not a children's tale. It is dark. It is tragic. It is a, it is just a, it is just a difficult thing to look at. It is a godless chapter literally in the sense that God is not mentioned in it. His name is not mentioned. There's no reference to him in that way. The only thing that we have in here that gives us any picture of what is right and wrong, righteous and unrighteous, comes from the victim, from Tamar, because she sees it for what it is. Now, David is forgiven. He has been freed from his sin in one sense, as Nathan said, but there are long-lasting consequences. Nothing will ever be the same in David's life, in his family, or in his kingdom. Because of what happened with Bathsheba. Nothing. And so we begin to see that unfold here. And that unraveling is just a sordid, ugly thing to see. God had announced to David, behold, I will raise up evil from within your house. And that's what comes here in chapter 13. So follow along with me as I read. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's a long chapter. Um, But... Follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. Now Absalom 
David's son had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Now, we'll see that that's not love in the way we understand it should be, okay? But after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Now, she is his half-sister. Absalom and Tamar are sister, brother and sister, from David as their father and the same woman as their mother. Amnon has a different woman as his mother. So here again, we see some of the fruits, some of the consequences of David not being that Deuteronomy 17 kind of king who doesn't take for himself many wives. David has done that, and it's evident. So Absalom and Tamar are brother and sister. Amnon is a half-brother. Verse 2, Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. That's an important way that that's phrased. Amnon wanted to do something to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. So Jonadab is Amnon's cousin, okay? And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down in your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and she kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber of Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than her, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away. Excuse me, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. 
He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves and thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her head on her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Now the tale goes on, the story goes on, that Absalom, two years, he plans, plots, thinks about how he's going to settle this and take care of it. And the rest of the account says how he comes to the king and says he wants to have a party. He wants to have a festival when it's time to shear the sheep. And he wants to invite the whole family there. It's going to be a family reunion kind of a deal. Even though he still hates Amnon. And David doesn't respond to it in the way Absalom would hope that he would. David says, no, we don't want to bother you. We don't want to trouble you. It's going to be too much on you to do all that. But Absalom presses and then finally asks David if Amnon could come to the festival, come to the meal. And David agrees that he could do that. And Absalom has planned with his men that when Amnon comes, he's going to kill him. And he does. And he does. Then Absalom flees and runs away. And we'll begin a process that we're going to see unfolding over the next couple of chapters. As he runs away from David, flees from David, is estranged from David. David is mourning and grieving over what he hears is the death of all of his sons. And it turns out not to be the case. It's just a train wreck, church. It's a mess. It's a mess. So I want to go back and just focus on the beginning part of this for just a minute. And what I'd like to do, what I want us to do with this is just think for a minute about the characters in it. And if you look at your sermon notes there, what's interesting about how this is written is that there is a juxtaposition, if you will. There is a deep, tragic irony in the names of these characters and the conduct of these characters. There's a, a, a huge discrepancy, if you will, between what their names mean or, or symbolize and what they actually do with their actions and with their lives. Okay, so I want to just walk through it, kind of doing an overview in that regard. All right. And the first person that that we're introduced to here, other than Absalom, I'll get to Absalom and to Tamar, is Amnon. Okay. now Amnon is David's oldest son. So Amnon should be, by all rights, the heir to the throne. Amnon should be the one when God made that promise back in chapter 7 that there would always be a descendant on the throne. Amnon would be the first one in line to take his place on that throne. But that doesn't happen. We all recognize that and see that. But Amnon is the oldest of David's sons, half-brother to Absalom and Tamar, and his name means faithful. Faithful. That's what he is in his name. In his life and in his heart, he's a godless pervert. He's an incestuous rapist. That's what he is. 
And that's how it's revealed to us in the passage. Okay? He's guilty of rape. He's guilty of incest. And Tamar, his sister, his half-sister, is the one who actually helps us see the character of her half-brother. And, and I want to point you down to verses 12 and 13, where she is, she is protesting. There's six times in this passage where she protests, where she cries out, where she asks him to stop, and he doesn't. Six times. And in this passage... In these two verses right there, listen to how she describes what it is that he is about to do to her. No, my brother, in verse 12, do not violate me. And that is the word that's used in throughout the Old Testament for rape. She knows what is about to happen. Do not violate me. For where could I carry my shame? This outrageous thing, that word that she uses there for this outrageous thing, actually means godlessness. That's how it's literally translated. Don't do this godlessness to me. Later on, in the very next verse, she says, As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. The word is Nabal or Nabal. Remember him? He was a character earlier who everybody saw as a fool. But it's much worse when that term is used here. It's translated in some versions as a godless wretch. That's what she says to him. Don't do this. You'll be considered a godless wretch because of the actions that you're about to carry out against me. It's an outrageous thing. And she calls him, I mean, she, she gives us the, the, the picture of just how bad it is when she says, don't do this, my brother. This is not right. This is against God's law. And later on, by the way, when she says, if you'll just ask the king, he might give you permission. I don't believe at all that's exactly what she's trying to. She's just grasping for straws, trying to gain time. Most commentators say David wouldn't have given his permission for this anyway. It's against the law. It's against God's law. But she's just trying to hold Amnon off any way that she can. But he doesn't hear. He doesn't listen to her. So once he's used her, everything changes, right? The love, the lust turns to hatred. And he says, just literally get this thing. It's only only two words in the Hebrew. Get this thing out of my sight. Do you hear that? She's just an image on the computer screen, maybe. There's no name anymore. She was something he wanted and he got it. And now he's ready to throw it away. It's godless. It is ugly. And church, it ought to be more than awkward as we think through what's happening here. Jonadab is the next character. His name means Jehovah gives willingly. And what we, see, what we see him giving here is not godly wisdom, although he is, he is called a counselor. The word there for crafty actually means sinister. It's used to describe the serpent in Genesis 3. So here's Jonadab. And I love what one commentator says about him. He says, Jonadab is perhaps the most dangerous man in the whole fiasco. And listen to why, he says. Amnon's evil is relatively restricted. 
He will always be in bed with someone tending to his hormones. But Jonadab has the skill to leak evil everywhere. He is dangerous because he has skill without scruple. He has wisdom without ethics. He has insight without integrity. So Jonadab sees what's going on in Amnon. He understands what's happening. And he schemes and devises a plan. Brother, just do this. Just play sick. Now, Jonadab will continue to be seen in some ways as a counselor, and it will not go well. But he's this character who seems to be, by worldly standards, a pretty smart guy. He knows the world's ways. It just leads to destruction. Man, I can't help but think about how sometimes that's just become something we look for in people. He needs to know how to get his way around this world. Consequences, we don't worry about those. We just want a man who's be able to accomplish things. Jonah Dab's that guy. He is that guy. The next person we see is Tamar. Her name means beautiful or upright. An upright, up, upright palm, okay, is literally what her name means. And she is. She's beautiful to look at. She's beautiful in her heart. We see that from the response of her. That's who she is in name. That's who she is in character. By the time this sordid thing has played out, then she is, she's, she's raped, she's discarded, she's dismissed, and she's shamed. It's interesting that Tamar is first an object. Well, first she's a daughter. She's a daughter. She's a sister. You know, commentators and, and and even as I've looked at, even Bathsheba fits into this category. In our culture, in our, in our situation where what used to be hidden behind the counter in magazines that you were embarrassed to look at and now you can pull it up on your phone this quick, those girls are nameless, but they're a daughter. They're just a face or a body, but they belong to somebody's family. Tamar is a daughter. She's a sister. And she's also an object. She's an object of this man's lust and of his desires. She is also obedient. She's obedient to her father. She's caring and loving toward Amnon, her brother. She does exactly what her father asked her to do, to go and comfort him, to care for him. And and it's interesting, the word that's used for cake here, it's the only place in the Bible that we see that word used. And it actually, some commentators give it the idea, this is comfort food. This is not just bread that's cooked. This is something special to Amnon, maybe special to the family. Maybe it was grandma's recipe. We don't know. But what she does is prepared for in love and in compassion and in care. So she's obedient. She's caring. She's set up. And she's trapped. She does everything that the Deuteronomic law says a woman should do. When she is threatened with being violated, she cries out, she screams, she does everything the law says she would do. This is a textbook case of rape. She's set up and she's trapped. And as she cries out time and time again, don't do this, my brother. Don't do this. Don't do this. Think as for me. Think about me. Think about you. Think about the consequences. Think about how you're going to be seen as she is Crying out, she's ignored. So she's a daughter, she's a sister, 
She's an object of lust. She's set up. She is trapped. She's ignored. And she is violated. He takes hold of her wrist, that wrist that's reaching out and trying to feed him and care for him. He's stronger than her, it says in verse 14. He violated her and lay with her. She's raped. And then she is hated. It's stark, is it not? In fact, the writer tells us exactly what's going on. The love with which he loved her is surpassed by the hatred that he has for her. It says there in verse 15. And he says, get up and go. She won't, so he has his servant put her out and say, get this thing out of my sight. So she is hated and despised, and then she is discarded and banished. And when she says, don't do this to me, this will make the rape even worse. It does do that, exponentially worse. Because at least her shame, even within the family, in that culture and in that time, if he would at least keep her, there would be some measure of dignity. Kept, but he cast her out and she is banished and discarded and shamed. She tears her robe. It's the same term that's used for the coat of many colors that Joseph wore. And she tears it and she takes on that appearance of of shame and grief as she puts ashes on her head and she goes away ruined and discarded. Literally, it means laid waste. She's set aside and worthless and goes to live in Absalom's house. That's Tamar. That's what happens to her. And again, she's the only one who sees this for what it is. Third character is Absalom. Absalom, it says there, was Tamar's brother. Absalom is absent from the picture until it comes down to verse 20. His name means father of peace, father of peace. And it appears on the level, I mean, at the beginning, that Absalom's one of these guys who wants to keep peace at any cost. Let's just kind of keep this quiet. Let's keep this in the family. There's an amazing, I believe, insensitivity to Absalom here. Look at what he says to his sister who stands before him devastated physically, emotionally, As she stands before him, this woman who has just been discarded, he says to her, Now, hold your peace, my sister. Do not take this to heart. Now, commentators give him the benefit of the doubt in that in some ways, and maybe we can, but I'm thinking, good grief. Really? Is that where we're at as a men? Is that where we're at as a culture? Just calm down, Tamar. We can't say calm down. We can't say to Tamar, don't take this to heart. Because her heart is crushed. It has been destroyed by what this man did to her. And so here's Absalom. He's dismissing, I believe, her pain and her devastation. All the while, already in his mind, I believe the wheels are turning. And he's not going to be stopped. The revenge is already being planned and plotted. And later on, we'll see Absalom using his authority, wrongly, I might add, to take care of Absalom. Which kind of leads us to David. David is mentioned in the beginning as the father of these children. And here in the end, when David heard in verse 21 all these things, he was very angry. Period. That's all we hear. 
That's David's response. Should remind us of some fathers that came before him. Maybe it should remind us of Eli, whose wicked sons took advantage of the women and took advantage of the, the, the worship there in the tabernacle, and they were worthless. Sons of destruction, literally. Maybe it should remind us even of Samuel's sons. David here is angry. He's passive. He should be, as the king, the judge. Absalom, excuse me, Amnon deserves to die. This is a capital offense at two levels. And David, as a righteous king, would respond accordingly. He also, as the king, has the ability, if you will, to, to grant a pardon. But David is compromised, right? Because David has seen and desired and taken. And I believe, while the term rape is not used in chapter 11, David uses his power to take what he wants, and he gets it, just like his son does. So David is compromised. He's in no position to speak judgment into this. And not only is he compromised as a judge, he's silent as a king, and he's a failure. He's not shepherding his children right now. He's not guiding them in any way in this. Yeah, he has a right to be angry, but there ought to be more to it than that, don't you think? I think so. So from Tamar, you know, we have this picture of, of, of what's going on. We have this perspective that we should have of, of all of this that's unfolding before us. And, and we see it for what it is. This is godlessness. It's perverseness. It's a, it's, pathetic and I wonder if we respond to it as we should read an article it's a clinical article that I read this week I had never heard the term schadenfreude schadenfreude it's a German term it's a German clinical term that describes people who take pleasure in seeing others suffer schadenfreude And one commentator, Ralph Davis, says this, and this hurts, but this is what he says. There seems to be a subtle pleasure folks get from seeing the misery of others. And that can happen to us in 2 Samuel 13. We may be fascinated with Amnon's scheming without hating Amnon's wickedness. We may be entranced, as many are with the literary artistry of the story without grieving Tamar's ruin. Davis says there is a perversion in us. We are so unholy that we find it supremely difficult to genuinely hate sin when we see it. What is our response to this? Well, that was then and there. You know, I mean, you know, we can no. This word is timeless. It's written for our instruction, for our correction, for our warning, for our rebuke and for our building up in godliness and in Christ-likeness. Tamar is the victim of rape and incest and abuse, and she's the one who helps us see this as we should. As perverse, as godless, foolish in one sense, it's outrageous, 
It is the work of a wicked pervert. And we need to see it for what it is. And we need to recognize what we can learn from this. And, and I'm not even going to go into the, to the rest of, of what happens in chapter 13 between Absalom and Amnon. We'll, we'll touch on that later on and how Amnon carries out his ploy against Amnon and what happens. And then Absalom flees and, and, and David's grief. We'll look at all of that. But, you know, I knew time was going to be a constraint here. And I want to just think about some applications of this, okay? And there's three things that you have in your notes there that I want you to look at and just be thinking about for a second as we think what we do with this mess. What do we do with this thing? Well, the first is to recognize that whether it's positional, spiritual, or physical, power can be exploitive and destructive. Physical power, structural power, in, in whether we're managers or leaders or whatever... When power is motivated by personal desires and guided by worldly wisdom, it can be and often is destructive. And that's what we see playing out here. Now, Christ is our example of the opposite, right? We recognize that. All of the men in this story fail massively at some level. They all do. No man in this story is exemplary for us. And we want to do like that. That's just not the case in chapter th- in, in this chapter at all. So our model in this comes in Christ. Okay, this is a godless chapter in that He's not mentioned, but we must see it from a perspective of all of Scripture. Okay, and to help us do that, I want you to turn over to the New Testament right quick and look at Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four. Early in Jesus' ministry, following his temptation in the wilderness, he returns to his hometown, Nazareth. And in Luke chapter 4, here's what the gospel records for us. I'll start reading in verse 16 of Luke 4. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to change lives. Jesus came, he says, in accordance with Isaiah chapter 61, to bring forgiveness, freedom, and healing to those who are oppressed and held captive. We understand from a spiritual standpoint the the captivity to sin. Jesus came to free us. From the grip of sin, from its condemnation, not necessarily from its consequences. We still have to deal with that. But he came to free us from the guilt and the punishment that our sin deserves. But I also believe that Jesus is talking about how he came to give freedom and healing and relief from relational and physical and sexual oppression. That it goes deeper than just a spirituality. That it touches our whole being. And Jesus came to give that. 
And there are captives and oppressed and abused among us, Westwood, among us in this church, and certainly among us in this community. And we must recognize that. We've got to get our heads out of the sand. There are those who live in a constant fear of physical and sexual abuse. And there are those who are dealing with the consequences of past physical and sexual abuse in their homes, in their schools, and in their churches. That's the reality. And we must recognize that. They've been preyed upon and abused by the people that they trusted and that they looked to for protection. People who were supposed to shepherd them and care for them. And our response must be grounded in the gospel, must be grounded in what Jesus says here in Luke. And we must recognize that, yes, we want and need to repent of our sin. All of us need that. Amnon needed that. David needed that. All of us need that spiritual release from the guilt and burden of our sin. But we also must recognize that part of being a new creature in Christ gives us a new perspective. And we want and should desire and should be busy about seeing that those who have suffered in this way find the healing and the hope that comes only in Jesus. That they find refuge from a harsh and broken and objectifying world and come and find the comfort that's found only in Christ and the comfort that should be found among his people. So we must recognize that model for us, this, this problem with power. Secondly, as you see in your notes, this idea of peace and protecting the status quo, oh, that's dangerous. The idea that we need to keep this under wraps, we have a reputation to uphold, we have some standing that we need to be careful and guard against. No, God spoke pretty clearly in the, in the prophet Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It it doesn't say anything about protecting our standing or our reputation or what people might think. Within our convention, within the Southern Baptist Convention a couple of years ago, there was a massive report by this independent agency called Guidepost. And what it found was, it was crazy is one word to use for it, but it was, it was so ugly, incriminating, revealing about Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches in our country. And I don't just mean within the last 20 years. This went back a generation or more. Guidepost revealed that there were church volunteers, church staff, pastors, people within the church, all the way up to the top of our convention leadership. And when accusations were made, worse than being ignored, they were, they were ignored and then nothing was said to anybody else. And a lot of these, these people who had carried out this abuse, if they were in some way reprimanded, left and went to another church and nobody said anything to anybody about it happening. So someone who abused at one church decided to move and took their sin with them. And it went on and on and on. 
J.D. Greer, who was the president of our convention at the time, said this. Our failures put survivors in a position where they're forced to fight for themselves, like Tamar. When we should have been fighting for them. The church should be a place where people know they are safe and where leaders who are leaders are who they say they are. And Jesus' gospel declares that God is a refuge to all who run to him, J.D. said. And the posture of our leaders toward abuse victims should reflect that. Protecting the vulnerable is not a distraction from the mission. It is our mission. We have no choice but to learn from our past and change our future. Protecting and guarding the status quo is not a goal for a gospel community. That's not our goal. Which leads me to the final point. Protection and providing a place, a haven of help and healing for the Tamars among us. That, that must be our priority. We must do that. Your elders here at Westwood have received extensive physical and sexual abuse training. We've gone through a pretty extensive course on that. And new elders who come on board are taking that same training. And for the last many months, we have been working with a group of ladies in our church, an abuse, an abuse rapid response team has been formed here at Westwood. And these ladies, some of them with more experience in this area than they would want, have sensed a call from God to be ready to serve and to be ready to come along beside. Not when it, not, not if it happens, but when. When, when that need comes. And, and here's, here's what that safety response team is, is, is gonna help lead us as a church to be ready to do. Just listen to this. Any person who's experiencing abuse would find encouragement to come forward and disclose their situation. Secondly, a victim of abuse would have an immediate and tangible pathway to safety and assistance in alerting the proper authorities, and that will, as it should happen. Because we as a church have an obligation to respond to these situations according to Paul's word to us in Romans about what the role of the government is. And also what we as a church in Matthew 18 have a responsibility to do. And those are not exclusive. We'll let the authorities and the law do what they should. And we as a church will do what we should. And those go together. They're not separate. So that victim of abuse will have the immediate and tangible pathway to that. Thirdly, abuse victims and their family would have resources available to help meet the critical and crucial needs in the situation they face. Fourthly, a victim of abuse would be provided support in confronting the abuser in some setting and in some way through that trained clinical help that they need. And finally, every person affected by this abusive situation would be cared for with a desire to see restoration through the power of the gospel. We're serious about this, church. And we as a church need to be serious about it because we live in a community and we enter a church where there are Tamars around us. We ask everybody involved in our children's ministry to take a background check. No, we require that. We don't need any Amnons. Okay. And so, yeah, this may be awkward, but it's necessary. And as we See what unfolds in David's life. Recognize this above all. That there is a Savior born to us. There is a, a Son given to us. 
And he is a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace, not Absalom. Jesus is that Prince of Peace. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And so I just encourage you, sisters, and maybe brothers too, if this is a part of your past, if this is a part of even now your present, come and, come and speak. Let, let us know. And let's begin to seek the Lord in how we can find healing. And as a church, let's be aware of and just be cognizant of what it means to be gospel people in the middle of a dark and broken culture. And how we can be ministers of grace and healing as the Lord enables us to do that. And I want to invite you to trust in Jesus if you never have. He's the only one who can take your broken, crushed heart and put it back together. He's the only one who can offer you the forgiveness of sin no matter how dark and desperate that sin was at some point in time. He's the one who paid the penalty for you. We sang about it earlier. He is the one who took the guilt. He is the one who took the punishment. And he is the only one who offers life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for the dark stories that are in your word. You've recorded them for us, Lord, because we need to see them and hear them. And we thank you that this word is relevant to us in so many different ways. And so, Father, I pray for you as the God of all comfort to bring comfort and encouragement and healing to those hearts that need it this morning. That you as the just and righteous and holy God would be conviction, bring conviction for sin where that's needed. And just remind us again, Lord, that our sin will find us out. That it will not stay hidden. And by your grace, you grant that gift of repentance and forgiveness and restoration. And I pray for that, Lord. And Father, we ask you to just do a work among your church. That, Father, we could be a gospel community made up of gospel people whose lives have been healed and restored through Christ. And that healing and that restoration is offered, Lord, through every member of this church family, to whomever we come in contact with. Father, use us, I pray, as ministers of reconciliation. And I ask that in Christ's name. Amen.